0: Hello oh, and welcome to the very first Collider Pod for January 2023, one of 12 that uh, myself, Chris Perry, is doing throughout the years, uh, being ably assisted by various people behind the scenes who've worked on the audio transfers over the years, and uh, there is no script for this at all, so what you're hearing basically is is what I'm, I'm making up as a go-along, so if I fluff the odd line here or there, do not be too surprised by that. Uh, The way we've created this is that I'm doing all the links in one go and then the clips are being dropped in in between. So apologies if maybe I reference something that you then don't get to listen to afterwards because for some reason the clip just wasn't very good quality or we just couldn't do much with it. Uh, it, It's a a, a bit of a... The way Kaleidoscope works really where nowadays we're all kind of spread out over a big area. When it first started 35 years ago, there was just a small group of us all lived in Stourbridge together and we'd see each other every Wednesday night down the pub. Now it's kind of spread out, so I'm doing this here. But you know, there were people working in Wales and then America and, and in all sorts of other places a, a, around the globe to create these Kaleidopods, and um, it, it's a whole new venture for us, really. I'm kind of hoping that you like it. I'm not going to try and do too much talking in between the clips, though I will try over the 12 or so to give you some flavour as to where the audio comes from and I'll speak in some detail about each one as we go along. I'm going to start off with some memories from the Channel Islands This was a bunch of tapes that were thrown out actually as part of a house clearance and bought by one of our spotters, a guy called Steve Monks and this is Lord Coutanche I hope I pronounced that correctly with his memories of the occupation of the Channel Islands when the Germans were there in the Second World War I remember Telling somebody, I think this is recorded
1: in the books elsewhere, that if any grandchild of mine ever asked me, uh, in the years to come, uh, what I did in the, in the war, I would say I protested. That was uh, what one had what one had to, to do, and uh, be it said that very often, uh, one was able to get a variation uh, of the orders which 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 were made. Now. I think it's also very important to bear in mind—I've said this before—but there was absolutely no communication with England at all. Later on, we managed to get communications through the Red Cross of personal correspondence of a very strict nature, but that was, again, was only permitted. Provided that the bailiff was personally responsible. I had to set up an office, which was called the Bailiff's News Office, and all the Red Cross correspondents had to pass through this office, and I had got various persons or my own selection who were responsible for seeing that it was the correspondence was all proper and reasonable and uh, that really there were what one could ask the Red Cross to, to transmit. It was a, covered a very wide field. Another very important aspect of all this life was that we were permitted to draw rations from France. But we turned over the island from the growing of potatoes and tomatoes to the growing of wheat, various forms of cereals. We got all the water mills back into action, and we became very largely self-supporting in flour. Of course, a great number of other things oh, were required to make life possible. The Germans treated us as part uh, of northwest France, which of course was conquered, at least uh, temporarily conquered. and. Uh, the French guard, go- the French government the, of the of the department, in the northwest of France, uh, was under an obligation imposed upon them
0: by the Germans to supply us with food. Now, as you probably have noticed, there we like to give you a fairly good meaty clip. Uh, these clips are all in the region of at least two, three, or four minutes long, because you'd much rather hear them than hear me. I know you would. Our second clip is from the twenty fourth of January, nineteen sixty four from a series called The Omar Khayyam Show. And if you uh, recognise Omar Khayyam, then of course you'll know it's the talents of Spike Milligan, uh, who was on the BBC Home Service. This is one of of quite a few things you're going to hear over the next few uh, months that came about uh, through the hard work of Charles Norton, who put out an appeal for lost radio shows on uh, BBC Radio 4, oh, nearly 10 years ago now. A huge amount was captured from various BBC sound engineers and I'm delighted that we can get the chance to kind of uh, play some of it for you, really. So this is from episode five, the America Cup, and uh, you might recognise the voices in there of Bill Kerr or Bob Todd or Barry Humphries, better known by, uh, as their made Everage, and uh, also you might recognise some of the music from George Chisholm and his jolly jazzers.
2: Where's that tall, spotty BBC over? Here he is tall, thin, reeking Tim Gudgeon will live dangerously. No vest. Yeah. You know, he'll do anything for money. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this week, as usual, we salute the Commonwealth, particularly Australia. Yeah! Good on you, Cobblers. <laughs> In 1962, the Royal Australian Yacht Squadron challenged the Americans for the America Cup. Just the Cup? What about the saucer? Oh, oh. Oh, oh. Look, look, yeah, I take these jelly babies and keep quiet Now then, John Shinsbruthal Put on your dramatic Australian comedy's voice And chat up the opening, John Yes, the America Cup for over 150 years Men from
3: the length, length and length of Europe Have failed to wrest the trophy from the Americans So what did we do? <coughs> Sir Frank Packer, a rich pauper Called a meeting of the Nobs. Oh, uh, uh,
4: well,
2: gentlemen, you know me, Nobs. I've got the she in my blood
4: and You can see where it gets in, mate.
2: Now, cobblers, this meeting of yocketsmen of sunny Sydney is for one reason alone. We've got to lick the American. I'm not going around licking Americans.
5: <laughs>
2: I mean, uh, you don't know where they've been. You misunderstood me. Well, I got a laugh, didn't it? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Now, no, I'll argue with facts. Now, first, we need money, gentlemen. Somewhere in the neighbourhood of, say... One hundred thousand pounds.
6: I moved out of that neighborhood years ago. Ho <laughs> ho
2: ho ho ho! Ha 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 ha! Well, somebody's gonna laugh at him.
6: <laughs> Come on now, Lord Fred.
2: Will somebody say 50 50 pounds?
7: I can say it, but I haven't got it.
2: I <laughs> oh, got it, but I'm not gonna say it. <laughs> Very well, I'll put the money up and down. I'll auction my wife, Lady Packer, and give up smoking fibers. <laughs> somebody's knocking on the ceiling. Come in. There are easier ways, I suppose (laughs) Now then, tell me, as this is not television, who
6: are you? My name's Barry Cluck Spelled C-L-U-C-K, but pronounced... (laughs) Of course, Barry Cluck,
2: I knew your father, Mr...
6: (laughs) At him, he invented the feathered alarm clock Now, I've heard you're going to contest the America Cup (laughs) So I offer myself to you as designer Have you any designs on you? No, but I brought this young lady along. I have designs on her. (laughs) Now, Mr. Cluck, what did you have in mind as a salary? Money. Money?
2: I can see you're nobody's fool. Now then, how much a week do you want? £5,000. 5000 Offer you four. Done. Right, £4 a week then. (laughs) Now then, settle down. Just sign this contract in which we guarantee to pay you four pounds a week in hard-boiled eggs.
8: Is this contract binding?
2: I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) Here now for no reason at all, in one kilt, George Chisholm and his pre-electric band.
0: And staying with Charles Norton's uh, Radio 4 appeal, here are several items I'm going to talk about now that all came about because of him. The first one is an interview with John Perchery, a man who doesn't need much introduction that was recorded on the 8th of January 1964. While some of it was broadcast, uh, this was the complete interview, so you're going to hear some
9: stuff here that has never been heard before at all. Well, I was in the Navy during the war. Uh, I was always seasick. I always have been seasick, so why I chose the Navy to join, I can't think. I think mainly because I like the idea of sort of long-range battles. I don't like being involved in hand-to-hand combat. I'd rather be there and say, cool, that was a good one, when it blows up. Or if you do, it seems to be quicker and a cleaner form of warfare, if you've got to have such a thing. And uh, uh, during the war, uh, I-, I served in HMS Hood, uh, the battle cruiser, I you remember, was sunk by the Bismarck, and I was extremely lucky to get off of that I was a CW candidate and got off very shortly before she blew up Uh, so close in fact was I to being blown up in it that my parents received letters saying that the addressee of this envelope is missing presumed killed I think my father was singularly shocked when I walked back hale and hearty rather disappointed I think (laughs) (coughs) Uh, on other occasions in the the water for example uh, and nearly lost my legs a couple of years ago out in Ibiza I'd been water skiing and uh, a diver suddenly shot up in front of me and in turning the helm very smartly to stop running into him I I turned my boat upside down or or sufficiently to kick me out and the boat went charging off round and round in circles and uh, in reviewing the situation I thought probably that if I waited for it to pass me and I swam into the middle of its circle because it was going in circles I could pull myself on board and get it under some sort of control. Well, this, I assure you, is a very stupid thing to do, and if ever you see a boat going round and round in circles, don't try to get aboard, because it'll go on round in circles until it runs out of fuel, and will not do what I thought it might do, which is fly off and, you know, mow down a lot of uh, swimmers and bathers. But I tried to get back on uh, on board it, but by the time I'd got halfway across the road, as it were, sort of swimming into the middle of the circle, it was on me, and I flipped back on my back, and kicked backwards, trying to pushed it out of the way, and grabbed it, but of course didn't grab the bow, I grabbed these sort of after-ropes, and of course it slung me underneath the props, and, uh, and took nice pieces out of both my legs. My friend standing on the quay didn't know this had happened, in fact a German friend of mine said, if I was you, I think this is a very, very bad idea, I don't think that you should be doing this at all, I think you should come out and leave the boat entirely alone, come out and leave it, it was very dangerous, At so this time I was going down for the third time, Hanging onto what was left of my legs. And if it hadn't been for a friend of mine there who runs a ski club, who come and me out, came and hauled me out of the water, I think I would have copped it again.
0: A few years ago we were contacted by a guy called Gordon Webster, who didn't have a huge amount in his collection, but what he had specialised in doing was recording audio of our various Doctor Who things over the years that didn't officially exist anymore. And Some of this has subsequently come out on CDs, although interestingly enough, not always kept by the BBC archives. So you might have heard some of this before, but the, these are original recordings he sent us over the years. This is this is Pete Murray, my old friend Pete Murray, uh, on Open House on the 29th of August 1978, talking to Tom Baker and Mary Tapp. Tom, firstly, i got go to you about uh, where we're going in the new series.
10: Um, Well, I mean, we're just always out, nearly always out in space, yes, but is there any particular new part of space that we'll be going to this time? Well, I mean that all frictional passes pace. Uh, yeah, you know, we're on a place called Tara at the moment, because uh, the, the the interesting thing about the new series, of course, is the introduction of uh, of the nearest character Romano, who um, breaks away from the usual image of either uh, just a pathetic juvenile used as a device or from the last girl, Louise Jameson, who played a sort of noble salad, now the blood Mary Tampold. Glamless, isn't she? But uh, I, yeah, I about to- her character. She knows more about Yes, that. tell us about your character.
11: Well, the man of the time Lord as well, which means that, for um, she's on an intellectual par with the Doctor. Wow. And she's just graduated from the Time Lords Academy, so in fact she comes out thinking that she knows everything. But when they embark on their adventures together, she discovers that in practicality it's very different facing monsters and facing aliens to actually reading about these places on paper. So she's got a process of learning to go through with the Doctor. Um, at the beginning, in fact, there was a bit of friction between them, is not there? Because they didn't really get on terribly well to start with, but it, it even out you know, as the series
10: progresses, hopefully. A bit like life.
11: A bit like life, yeah, win.
10: Okay. I'm sure they didn't apply when you first met Tom. I mean, I didn't know then. You met each other before?
11: And then we hadn't, actually, but um, we did a screen test together before the series started. And, um, well, we did it on. When you,
10: we do get on. <laughs> did you have a lot of competition getting, in getting the book?
11: Well, I don't know when other people went up for it. I think, um...
10: Well, it was 600 after were they ready? Pop. 100.
11: Yes, and they did six screen tests, I think, eventually. There's still a lot of people. Yeah. And a sort of preliminary knockout, type thing, And then there was a short list of six, and we did six tests.
10: And you made it, kid. I made it. And there you are up in spade. Uh, have you finished recording, or are you still recording? Well how it's a little free through. It's a long horse. It gives ten months non start. I know it does. And you've had repeats on prior to this, haven't you, as well? Yes. And they had a marvellous figures, too, because you know, the summer the summer figures are usually lower. Mm. But we had a great turnout. These but Look, things are happening. Uh, it's suddenly become international, cause there's something to do with the general revival of instant fantasy. They just mm-hmm. made some uh, sales of Doctor Who all over in For mm-hmm. The first time on a serious scale. Oh, that's tremendous, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Because it isn't filmed, is it? It is um, uh, on
11: uh, the... Well, it's we though. We do have yeah. some middle location,
10: Not always so easy to sell, uh, partly tape, mm-hmm. probably filmed, to assume. Mm-hmm. It. So that's a great, great boom, boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, How do you think, uh, I mean, well, perhaps I can't really ask you a question like that, because you're bound to be slightly biased and prejudiced, but do you feel that it comes up, or is it better than the average science fiction American equivalent? Well, I don't think that there actually there is any equivalent. I think that's where it stands a good chance of being very successful. I suppose there are science fiction things, though, aren't there? I well, there are science fiction things. I, I would call ours more science fantasy. I think that the things about science fiction ones, that they're often rather serious in their intentions, aren't they? Mm. And the characters are often a bit cardboardy, you know, because they're earth people going through uh, some kind of uproar. Whereas because we're both aliens, we're licensed by our character definition to freewheel around and perhaps, you know, be a bit more Mm -hmm. strange and bizarre.
5: Well also
11: because Doctor Who is a sort of fictional character, it gives you more scope in a way. You can go further with it. Whereas the American TV series that are usually broadcast in England, things like Wonder Woman and The Incredible Hulk, are the metal characters, so they're actually within very strict limitation, because they're only what had been seen in the Marvel comic.
10: Had you ever watched Doctor Who?
11: You if I'm when I was a child, I watched it when it first started, about 15 years ago or something, but um, I haven't watched it much recently, I watched it when we E's was in it, because we trained at rather together, so I was rather interested to see her. But no, I've always liked the programme, because I didn't actually think the standard was good, and I'm not as prejudiced, say, as, well, I don't think Tom is prejudiced, but as you say, you, you're bound to want the programme to be a success, but I think objectively speaking, it is quite a high standard, considering it's done in such a short time.
0: When we did our 30th anniversary celebrations, which, uh, strangely enough, were five years ago, uh, we were there with Joy Whitby, and she brought along a BBC producer called Barry Bevins, who probably was better known for doing work with uh, Hollywood stars. He'd work on things like Film 74, Film 75, Film 76, things like that. And he donated a load of audio to us that we would gradually been transferring over the last few years. And this is a location report from Return of the Pink Panther with Peter Sellers, Christopher Plummer and Blake Edwards.
7: Did you look at the original Pink Panther film before you wrote the film? No. I knew it. Intimate. How different is Inspector Clouseau these days from what he was in the original film? A little older. That's all. No wiser. He's basically the same. He looks the same. Uh, The only difference is that we've made some of his pronunciations more marked.
12: While he's making up he's decided on a disguise, right? Yeah. And halfway through it I mean, whatever he's doing turns the page. So I'm not...
11: Oh, yeah, oh, I'm
13: having a ball. I think it's really terrific. I'm allowed to laugh as much as I like. I can, you know, corpse whenever I want to, and that's, uh, you know, very lucky, because if you're doing scenes with Peter, if I wouldn't have been able to corpse, I mean, it would have been up <clears throat> the whole time. I pay Claudine, who is the wife of the Phantom. Uh, the Phantom is now retired, and. Uh, he's getting very bored, and so she tries her very best to sort of, I suppose, bring him back to crime.
9: Well, I mean, this is a more straight comedy in the sense that uh, he's a kind of Douglas Fairbax senior kind of leaping about fellow who doesn't always do it as gracefully as he he would like to. And uh, it it has a, a lightness and a sort of gay kind of well, I, I, you can't call it Cary Grant sort of comedy, but it's a kind it's of light and thing. Did you see the original with Pink Panther fool? Yes, I did, and loved it.
13: Did you see that? Yes, I did, Jan. yeah. I loved it.
9: <laughs> but the character of Sir Charles, or the Jewel Thief character, has changed in each successive film, and, and the same actor, I don't believe, has played it twice. I mean, David Newman was delicious in the first one. Claudia Cardinale played a role similar uh, to your...
7: How different are you, do you think, from her?
13: Gosh, I don't know. I think we're completely different in types. Claudia in on your vice out. I don't know. I haven't, I'm not exactly, I know.
4: But they all vary a little bit. He is the chauffeur to Sir Charles, which is Christopher Plummer. but he's more than that. He's really a part of the family, and as you will see in the film, he says what he liked. He's a bit like a how can I say, a big daddy to him, though, as for Charles, or Christopher Blunder says in the film, he cooks a very good souffle, he obviously also does the laundry, and he drives the roads, but he's very cheeky, and uh, he's part and parcel of the
7: household. How do you keep up the spontaneity when you have to do one more take after another in a comedy sequence? Well, you see, there's a great thing with Blake, you very rarely ever do. I mean, if it works right first time, that he'll only do one take. He knows, you see, he doesn't believe in that overcovering thing. A lot of directors don't have confidence in themselves. They say, well, maybe we'll get one better. Or maybe. We'll... Blake knows when it's arrived, and uh, he grabs it that way. I mean, I've worked with directors who've done literally 20 and 30 takes just because they hadn't anything better to do. Or they might have more to choose from. And they overcover. Mind well, you, uh, some people say it's better to overcover than undercover. But if you know what you want when you're shooting, You just shoot what is necessary. As
14: we go along,
7: things happen. I would say that if you had to talk in terms
12: of percentages, I'd say it's 60% what is written, 40% uh, and that's in terms of dialogue and joke. uh, 40% um, embellishment, if you will.
13: Forget the script. When you arrive on the set, everything's changed and he's thought up something the night before and he's you know um gives you really great ideas
12: but inevitably uh, what you visualize in your head and what happens out there uh, there's usually a big discrepancy to uh is there anyone there who can drive the other
0: and here's a real a real interesting one and i hope the music fans are going to discuss this for a long time to come because it's a slight mystery to me this is slade in concert we think probably for germany or maybe austria Recorded in 1972 by the BBC. I don't think they, they ever showed this to the BBC. Uh, maybe it only went to Germany or Austria. Is this the sole surviving audio in the world of a Slade concert, I asked myself. I'm sure uh, better people than me, including Gary Jordan, can probably answer that one.
8: we
15: we
16: present, proudly present, Slade from England. <laughs>
0: Finally, from Charles' efforts, uh, this is also for, uh, from uh, one of those, those reels that he uh, worked on. This is the David Hamilton Show from BBC Radio 2. My mate Diddy, who has worked for many years with Kaleidoscope on different projects, and uh, this is him in his prime.
10: Well, we'll have our next news at five o'clock, and now for Radio 1 and two listeners, it's over to the David Hamilton Christmas Day Show. Thank you, Jimmy. Have a very merry Christmas
5: with David Hamilton. Whee! <laughs> sure about the game. Oh, Woo!
9: Welcome to the David Hamilton Show for Christmas Day. What can you say about a fabulous day like today? It's the
15: most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful.
0: Now, one collection you're going to hear an awful lot more from in the next few months is the radio collection and TV soundtrack collection of Bob Monkhouse. And I thought I'd spend a bit of time on this first show talking a bit about the connection with Bob, because it's a huge connection. When we were first asked by the BFI all those years ago, I think it was 2009, to go down to Bob's house at Claridge's and have a look, um, we were very interested by the thousands of videotapes. But I happened to notice that up in the attic, literally up in the attic on a couple of shelves, was a load of audio reels. Now, I have to say, Kaleidoscope never used to collect radio or audio stuff particularly. It just wasn't something that we had our our sights set on. And um, initially, I didn't want to take any of it, actually. But, uh, you know, Abigail, Bob's daughter, begged me to take it because she said otherwise it would go in the skip. So we did take it. And and we found, you know, hundreds of old, rare uh, recordings going all the way back to the 1940s that Bob had recorded either of himself or indeed of comedy shows that he happened to like as well you know and um it, I, well, we came to realize once alan and alice hayes did did the bulk of the transfers um that really it was probably more likely to have been recorded by dennis goodwin his, his original partner because most of it uh had dennis's name on the actual tapes so we renamed it as the monk house goodwin archive to try and recognize the fact it was a combined effort of the two of them really uh this is an unbroadcast pilot from uh, the 21st of July 1980 for something called The Harvey Brinkle Story. The, the, this is uh, the work of Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, who I think you probably heard of because of Red Dwarf, and this is something that would never have been heard before. I was an only child, which was partly my
4: fault, because every time my parents discussed trying for another baby, I'd strip down naked, leap into their bedroom and say, hey, top this. I was a very brash child. Way back in the thirties, I remember playing a tennis game with three great personal friends of mine, Salvador Dali, Pablo Picasso, and Jean-Paul Sartre, and I was the only one who could hold his serve. (laughs) Why? Well, Dali was playing with a racket that was about fifteen yards long, with a head that drooped at the end. Picasso insisted on using square balls, and Sartre, er... Great as existentialist, I grant you But he just refused to accept that anything existed Particularly the line calls I accused him of being a bad sport And he said that uh, Harvey said I believe the whole universe to be totally meaningless Especially you well, I was young, I was, I was brilliant My whole life lay before me And then something came along to change all of that
17: It's September 1939, and world leaders gather in Vienna for the draw
4: for the Second World War. There's Neville Chamberlain waving at the camera. He's Prime Minister
17: of England. Well, Neville, let's hope for a good one, eh? Number 47. Germany. Number 24. We'll play the rest of the world. That is a cracker.
4: The Germans, of course, eliminated from the First World War by the rest of the world, and uh, they'll be looking to make amends this
17: time. Number 16. Italy. Number 79. We'll play Anybody Who's Losing.
4: That's the one the Italians wanted. Benito Mussolini was saying this morning he wanted either anybody who's losing or nobody at all. He'll be delighted with this one. So war was declared. Uh... How did I feel at this time? Well, I believe in democracy and freedom, in the divine right of the people to choose the form of government that they desire, and I believe that anyone who doesn't think this way should be beaten insensible until they do. For this ideal, I was prepared to fight, and if it meant laying down my life for my country,
0: then by golly, I was ready to do it. And something else uh, which i say sounds slightly more more recent if you can call 1994 more recent but this is william tell the lost epic there again recorded by bob munkhouse uh, it's, it's about the aborted 1953 film version starring errol flynn and uh, conrad phillips who played of course tv's william tell is here in conversation uh, talking about this william tell the lost epic william tell the story of the swiss folk hero had already been used by Hollywood as the basis for Burt
14: Lancaster's The Flame and the Arrow. And by coincidence, was being mapped out by MGM for Stuart Granger. Salkin wanted Errol Finn for his version.
18: So there we were in Italy, and we were tax-free, and so I uh, made a couple of other deals, one of them, William Tell, but they put up 50,000 in advance, each of these deals. So Errol had a quarter of a million dollars in the bank, that he never had before, and he was out of the tax thing because the last picture we did here was with Universal where he took half the picture instead of salary. They couldn't afford to pay him. And we had another picture with Allied artists to do up in England called The Black Prince or something, which I didn't produce, but I was associate producer. So we uh, went around with William Tell and there was no script and there were complaints from Switzerland as if this guy was real. You know, if it's like somebody doing a thing on George Washington, at least he was real. But here, the guy's fictitious, they're saying, no, you can't have him married, you can't have him this, you can't have him not married. So, uh, it was gonna be a difficult job.
14: But he didn't realize how difficult. On December 4th, 1952, two weeks after MGM's announcement, Salkin obtained $50,000 to finance his film. No more was heard of the proposed MGM Granger version. Meanwhile, Finn started filming his first Italian production, Crossed Swords*. Hey, what's all the excitement about?
13: The devil's wrong with you? It was all Pantopka's idea.
6: She would trap Renzo. We would surround him and make him listen to the bachelor law. But we're not for you. <laughs> we're not for you.
10: For once, they thought the playing of games was over. For once and only for the length of a kiss. I'll take this from Renzo, notorious rake and one of the best jumpers out of windows in the known world.
14: You gave promise of being a real woman. Why don't you try being one? During the filming of that scene, Flynn turned yellow and collapsed. He was rushed to hospital, seriously ill with liver complaint. Send for his relations if you can, the doctor told Mayon, because he's likely to die. Despite this slight setback, Technicolor cameraman Jack Cardiff continued filming Cross Swords, his first in the new and cheaper colour system. I was lucky enough to work with Jack Cardiff on one of his later films, Sons and Lovers. I seem to remember I played a character called Baxter Dawes.
0: If any of you know Pat Richmond, you'll know that she's a huge Mary Hopkin fan, and we transferred her audio some years ago and this was something that we found this is the golden shot keeping the bob Munkhouse collection smooth link this you notice know, very smooth there okay and this is from the 1st of september 1975 this this is bob uh with as you would expect <laughs> Some connection into Mary Hopkins. Actually, I'm not totally sure what the connection to Mary Hopkins is, actually, because I can't see her listed on, on the run here. But for some reason, we found this in one of Pat's tapes. Uh, and uh, it's probably more likely you recognise Anne Aston, Wei Wei Rong, and the Golden Partner, Bernard Cribbins.
6: Yes, I'm afraid he's hit the smoke. Oh, dear.
17: Uh... <coughs> Can you imagine having your pick at the Silvery Selection? You take the key. Well, the choice is really marvellous and here. Offers a dishwasher and bunk beds. Let's open the door for you. Here we go. You know, for the past 13 weeks, I've thoroughly enjoyed doing a radio series called Punchline. Opposite the brilliant and very funny star of film successes like Carry On Jack, Two Way Stretch, The Railway Children. Yes, my golden days book says December the 29th, 1928 BC. He's not really that old. He just looks it in strong daylight. Bernard Cribbins, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs)
8: Your people thank you very much that's marvellous enough that's enough he said enough me. fancy me on the golden shot I wouldn't fancy you on toast <laughs> <laughs> I would punch him in the eye but I don't like getting mascara on my fist Look, Cribbins, yes, you've come here to shoot off the crossbow,
17: not shoot off your mouth. So yes, right. Come on, pick yes, a letter. Yes,
8: yes, Bob, I just want to say that it's fantastic, this setup. And now I've seen where you've done all these, what, 300 shows? In mm-hmm. the, yeah. I realise now why you fit so perfectly into this series. I mean, you're absolutely perfect. How, how, how do you mean I, I'm, I'm perfect? Well, I mean, in the first place, this is a game about shooting, isn't it? And you resemble a rifle. I. <laughs> don't, don't you think I, so? It does resemble a rifle. I resemble a rifle? Yes. Yes, I mean you think you're the butt of the jokes and a barrel of laughs, but really you're half cocked, a hell of a sight, and a large bore. <laughs> <laughs> Curses! Yes, and what's more, what's more, I was going to—you give us all these targets about things which happened 900 years ago, and the jokes match. I mean the crossbow has to be fired, and you ought to be. You're full of bull, full of bull. I can wait. I'm not proud. <laughs> Off target The audience looks blank The contestants are hand-picked And so is your hooter <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely perfect
17: <laughs> Thank you, Cribbins, and may I sing And may I sing you may. we have needed you on this show
8: Ever since it began You haven't, have you? How's that, yeah, Bob? Every week, for seven years We've been calling for you yes? Bernie the Dolt <laughs> I see Yeah, You wouldn't think Bob and I Really love each other, would you? and you'd be right that's why we call our radio series Punchline. every time one of
17: us thought of a good line the other punched him rubbish <laughs> 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 come on cribs spin the wheel right it's the only good turn on the show
8: <laughs> are you ready
17: here we go I should have known better round and round she goes where she'll stop nobody knows that
8: one right
17: now this is someone writing to us to nominate a golden partner someone who'd like to compete in the show but can't for some reason or another and deserves to get lucky
8: now this is from uh mrs j smith at 15 walton close Hale zone west midlands b634 la dear bob i would like to nominate my niece mrs margaret newell of 49 huntsman's drive Kinver near starbridge as a golden partner she has must she has had muscular dystrophy for a number of years and is confined to a wheelchair now Have you any suggestions to make about how we uh, benefit
17: Margaret Newell? Well,
8: I'll tell you what we could do. What about me adding a personal bonus and giving either my golden partner, if she can make it, or, if not, some relatives, free seats for the funniest show in London? Yes, there's always room in the House of Commons this Uh, time of the year. Just a minute, just (laughs) just a minute. I'm referring to the new comedy hit starring me, Peggy Mount, Bill Pertwee, Geoffrey Sumner, Terence Alexander, Jane Downs, Trudy Van Dorn, Margot Hardiman, and it's at the Criterion Theatre in Piccadilly Circus. Where? Piccadilly Circus, you know, you can't miss it. There's a fellow in the middle of the road, he's doing the golden shot like that. Oh.
0: and carrying on with the Bob Monkhouse connection and the, the Conrad Phillips connection as well we have a wonderfully spooky ghost play here from the 2nd of January 1981 called The Hex which was based on M.R. James's casting The Runes starring Conrad Phillips as Montague this is, this is smooth stuff you see this is, I mean you wouldn't get this on Radio 2 would you? They wouldn't be as good as this if you believe that you believe anything
16: James, are you awake? Yes. And decent? In bed. That'll do. I brought you up a cup of coffee and a few sandwiches. How do you feel?
19: Oh, like I could
14: drink a cup of coffee and eat a few sandwiches.
16: Okay. Sit up. Balance the
14: tray. Right. Fine.
16: What time is it? My watch has stopped. Quarter to seven. Been awake long? Half an hour, perhaps. Quarter to seven. About, yes. Oh, you're up early, aren't you? For Saturday? James, it's a quarter to seven in the evening. You've been asleep all day. What? I wouldn't bring you ham sandwiches for breakfast. Evening? You were quite bad last night. John thought it was a heart attack at first. Your heart did stop, he said, very briefly. He put you under mild sedation.
14: I see. What happened? What do you mean? In the kitchen, I remember the noises—someone or something trying to get in. The fear it was out of all proportion. It left me just enough wits to realise that it was like a separate thing—an enormous shadow that fell over me when the noises started. But not, and then I felt. Yes. Then you brought me ham sandwiches and coffee.
16: What did happen? Well, when we got there, you were lying on the floor. The windows were smashed and the door was forced. We didn't see anyone, but then we didn't look, not till later. Our main concern was you, I told you. John thought you had a heart attack. That's all? Yes. And the kettle was boiling and the room was cold. Unnaturally cold. How do you feel now? Well, not too bad. Shaken, but not too bad. After receiving visitors? Visitors? What visitors? Elspeth Speedwell. She's here. Downstairs. We finally got through to her this morning. We didn't tell her much over the phone, but when she realised what it was about, she came straight away. She knows everything now. Gardini, the curse, what happened last night. You don't mind? No, no, of course not. I've got to see her. She wants to speak to you too. If you're feeling up to it, we'll bring her up. The what? Well, we'll bring her up. I'll get you Joan's dressing gown uh, to slip round your shoulders. Oh, for
14: goodness' sake, you'll do no such thing. I'm
0: not an invalid.
14: I'll get washed and dressed and come downstairs.
0: Another of our spotters that turns up the odd thing, normally extracts, is a, is a gentleman called Darren Hart, who has a radio show, and I'm sure he does a far better job on his radio show than I do on this podcast. I have to say, but this is from the London Palladium show on the first of January, nineteen sixty-seven. <laughs> eBay does turn up some interesting things and, and uh, we were uh, unlucky to be outbid some years ago now for a collection of audio reels that contained a missing Sykes episode, this was a, a TV soundtrack to a Sykes and um, I was rather amazed some months later when Charles Norton suddenly tra- transferred them and sent us a copy of this one this is Sykes and a Camping from the 7th of March 1963 and uh, you might recognise the dulcet tones of Jack Smethurst who recently passed away in here
20: it's still pouring down out there. It'll stop. It'll stop at no time since records were kept as it ever gone on forever. Eric, why can't we camp in some <laughs> nice little hotel somewhere? Yeah, and sit in the lounge, looking out the window, watching the rain at six pounds a day. Yeah. This is the life and it's free. <laughs> oh, that's... We've nice. got protection. Morning, Altman. Good morning. Have you been here? Yes. Hello, hello, hello. Call the lifeboat out of thee. <laughs> well, it makes a shade. I was expecting lovely weather for ducks.
3: <laughs> What's all this gear?
20: Oh, well, if it's good enough for the Prime Minister, it's good enough for my brother.
3: Well, I hope you know the grouse shooting
20: season's over. The milkman shooting season isn't.
5: <laughs>
20: Would you stop the milk for four days, please, milkman? Going away. We're going camping. Camping? <laughs> In a ten? In a ten? Well, in this, in this. Well, it's, it's better than sitting in a hotel at six pounds a day. Eric, I know a hotel that's much cheaper than six pounds a day. Now, don't start that again, Hattie. What's a bit of rain? A bit of rain? There's a fellow up the road, started billing himself an hour.
6: Eric, let's wait till it stops.
20: No, Hatt, we've only got four days left and we're going to use them to go camping. Yeah, well, I'll be back home tonight. How much? How much? Well, I bet you don't camp out four nights. Yeah, all right, come on. That's uh, the... a <laughs> fiver. A fiver. You heard that, didn't you? Yeah. A fiver. I know about camping, mate. I roughed it during the war. Oh, don't talk to me about the war remember that stinky little ho- that stinky little hotel i was billeted in during the war four of us to a room don't talk to me about roughing it mate we were six months before we got sheets on the bed
6: Well, it was three weeks before eric got leave
20: three weeks
6: listen mate i never came
20: home for three years how old's your jack no never mind that. <laughs> I'll be back now tomorrow for me five will nobody here. He spent all the war in
0: Rygate, did. <laughs> oh, come on, Ed. A few items here now from the Ed Doolan archive, a gentleman who didn't live a million miles away from me in Selly Oak, and we were very privileged to uh, be given his archive when he passed away, thanks to Jasper Carrot arranging it, funnily enough. And uh, a few items here. He worked for BRMB for a while, interviewing celebrities, and this is Arthur Lowe you're going to hear first of all, being interviewed by Ed in 1976 when I was transferred to the Remi <laughs>
21: and uh, stayed out there for the rest of the war. I was out there for nearly four years um, and during that time while I was out in the Middle East towards the end of World War, uh, when everybody was getting sent happy and there was nothing to do I started getting some plays going and uh, and play readings and things and found that um, you know I'd, I'd, I'd Resurrected uh, an old love, really. That's not and uh, Well here we are today, you know. Oh, well, isn't we <laughs> many vicissitudes along the path, but uh,
4: doubtless, when you were serving in the army back in those days, how did you look at the home guard as a serving soldier? Did you see
21: them differently to the way you'd see them now? eh uh, I don't know. No, I don't think so very much because you see, um in certain branches of the real army, it was just as chaotic. I mean, when we changed from <laughs> from being cavalry to being medium artillery, uh, it was very little different, like I can assure you, because we artillery gave us the actual guns, and when they arrived, they were, they were iron-tired um, six-inch howitzers from the First World War. But before that, we had to use the officer's trap as a gun, you see. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, the shafts down <laughs> and uh, loading it with with uh, with uh, sweeping brushes and all them. I mean, it was just as ridiculous. And somewhere out there in the
4: Midlands, there were two Germans looking at each other at the moment and saying, "On Hans, yet we lost."
21: <laughs>
4: <laughs> How did you first get involved with Dad's army?
21: Well, uh, it was after the the swindler days. You know what I mean by the swindler days? No, you tell me. I don't. Well, I was with Coronation Street for years. Um, Although this was... Was this uh, was this before I came in the country? I don't know. And, yes. 1961. Anna, oh, no. I started yeah. with Coronation Street and I was with it for four and a half years. Then they peeled me off in the character of, of Swindler. Uh, you should know. I mean, it was all over Australia and still is as far as I know. Yes, but we got it years later. Uh, literally years later. And, um... Anyway, but it's a cut of long stories. I'd, I'd done this character of Swindley for about six and a half years, and uh, we thought it was time to stop, both Granada and I thought it was time that we'd wrap that one up. But, uh, so I decided I would go back into the theater for a year till the heat was off, television-wise, you see. So I did, and uh, but within nine months, the BBC had offered me this Dad's Army thing, you see. And it was very strange because it came in a welter of other work. I, I, I suddenly had one of those spurts where work was coming in from all sides. And we were sorting it out, what to do, what not to do. And I, from the back of my mind, um, I did a sort of double take. And then heard my agent say this, oh, oh, and by the way, David Croft wants you to have lunch with him at the BBC to talk about a new seven-part series or something. And this, I did this double take days after, and it suddenly clicked. I thought, oh God, this is the man I must go and see because it's time I work for the BBC again, And I went along and uh, and saw him and Jimmy Perry and they said, we've got this idea, what do you think about it? So I liked the idea and then I said, who have you got in mind for the rest of the cast? And when they told me, of course, you know, I jumped. And <laughs> with, with a team
0: like that, I didn't see how we can fail and the next item from ed's collection is a comedy playhouse called house in a tree which you might recognize better as the pilot for not in front of the children starring wendy craig and paul damon here it is richard waring's original comedy pilot with wendy craig as jennifer and paul damon as henry and uh, you might recognize the Dorset tones of various other uh, well-known people like fanny rowe as the mother bosley Knight as biddy and roberta tovey as trudy
16: Yeah, things have come
6: to a pretty pass when one takes one's life in one's hands just dropping in for a cup of tea. would not you tell Henry to take that dangerous pile of wood down? Yes, well, he hasn't got round to it yet. No, oh, he hasn't got round to much health either. This house is almost the same shambles it was when you moved in a year ago. Well, we can't afford to buy new things. No, not surprised. Well, Henry on an art master's salary. Oh, what a job. Messing about with paint, rubbing shoulders with naked models. Well, he does manage to fix in a couple of pictures sometimes. Well, he doesn't sell any of the pictures, does he? Oh, no, his last exhibition didn't do badly. Exhibition? On the railings of Kensington Gardens. But <laughs> well, he sold three. Yes, he let them go cheap when it started to rain. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Jennifer, but I still think you made a great mistake in not marrying Roger Parker. Well, it's a bit late to bring it up, Mum. I've had three kids and Roger's had four. He's <laughs> left his wife. <laughs> I guess I still can't see Henry inviting him to stay here. Oh, Mum, would you take over, please?
5: Hello?
16: Hello, darling. Henry,
6: just hang on a second, will you? Jennifer?
9: Darling?
16: Hello? Hello?
9: Hello? Henry!
6: Mum's here and I didn't want her to know you had to go to, you know.
16: Well, as a matter of fact, darling, I'm still here.
6: Haven't they got to you yet? Yes oh they have got to you
16: they've passed me
6: (laughs) now why are you still there
16: they want to hang on
17: to me
6: couldn't you pay the fine or something
17: well i didn't get as far as paying the fine i said i wouldn't take the treehouse down
6: henry
17: it's called contempt of court (laughs) henry you're not going to prison yes i'm I'm sorry darling oh Oh, darling i i have to go now Oh, but,
6: but, but, but how long will you be there
16: Till I've purged my contempt.
6: <laughs>
16: that, that means agreeing to take the, the treehouse down. You see, it's a matter of
6: principle, darling. Well, when can I see you?
17: Well, I don't know. I'll ask the tipstar. The
6: tipstar? <laughs> um,
17: when, when can my wife see you? She makes application to the governor.
5: Oh.
17: <laughs> you make application to the governor, darling. I'm not sure the exact address. I just imagine Brixton Prison would find him. Brixton? Yes. Well, you didn't think they were going to send me to Dartmoor, did
6: you? Oh, <laughs> well, Henry, how can you be so calm about it? Chatting all about prison governors and tip and...
17: Yeah, darling, darling, I, I, I must go now.
6: Henry! you me to cook supper or scrub the kitchen floor? <laughs>
5: Goodbye,
6: darling. It <laughs> wasn't Roger Parker. <laughs> no, it was Henry. Really? Rather a passionate farewell, wasn't it, to someone you'll be seeing again in a couple of hours? I'll just go and get the
0: tray. That was from May 1967. In case you you hadn't kind of twigged that. And another comedy playhouse here from the Ed Doolan archive. This is the Loves of Larch Hill, written by uh, Anne Burnaby, who I don't know much about her. Which is why this is quite an interesting little piece. On the 12th of may 1969 this never went any further than a pilot i have to say but you know a, a good cast with robert dawning and jan holden in the roles of robert love and liz love
6: out of the window wouldn't you think bob with all the trouble we take that they'd be a bit more grateful i mean look at your mother she still has a loving family around her but even she doesn't seem really settled or happy
2: my mother is happier now than she's been in years She's got me under her tiny little thumb again. How would you like to be the only son of a female Rasputin?
6: I would like to be anyone's only son, thank you. I enjoy being a girl. And I'm glad of it. And it's all in the mind, you know. You're the one who really wants to do the dominating because so you make out it's the other way around. Your mother couldn't dominate a doughnut.
22: She dominates
21: me.
6: You said it, dear, I didn't.
5: I don't I don't
22: Well, man, you're late on parade. Oh, Liz, I I say I'm frightfully sorry. Not used to the pleasure of your company this time of the evening. What makes you think
6: it'll be a pleasure, Henry, dear?
22: Yes, uh, well, uh, two large scotches, Beryl, and... uh,
6: Two large pink gins. Both for me.
22: Oh, yes, certainly. uh, I say, don't mind me asking, but uh, is anything the matter? You look absolutely ghastly, the pair of you.
6: He's lost his mother.
22: Oh Lord. Oh, I was dreadfully sorry to hear that. How did it happen? She, she just went. One moment she was perfectly all right, wasn't she Liz?
6: Perfectly. And the next, she'd gone.
8: we have been to the bowling alley, the bingo hall,
6: the bridge club,
8: the old time dancing, every, anywhere we could think of.
22: Anything to take your mind off things, I suppose. I don't imagine she'd want you to go into mourning. I mean, she'd had a good innings, hadn't she?
8: Look, Oman, I don't mean to say I've, I've lost her.
22: I mean to say I've, I've, I've lost her. She's strayed. Oh, oh, I'm with you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that must be a bit worrying. Yeah. You don't think she might be suffering from loss of memory or oh, something?
8: Oh, not a hope, old man. She can remember that we went right back to the time when I cut my first tooth and tried to bite the vicar.
19: Now, listen, Henry,
8: do try and be a little bit more helpful, will you, old boy? Now, where would you go if you were knocking on 80 and you wanted a bit of fun? Well,
6: <laughs> I don't think you'd be that much of an optimist, would you, Henry? Henry. <laughs> But what's your mother look like?
21: Uh, Don't tempt me, Beryl. She beggars description.
6: Well, I'm only asking because there's a little old lady around the public that doesn't look as if she belongs there. Talking very oud and drinking large ports. Could she be your mum?
22: Couldn't be anybody else's, but the sound of it. Large
6: ports in the public bar?
5: It's cheaper around
22: there, don't forget. You can have a sing song if a you A sing song?
8: Like no, mother of mine would have. I'm
6: not so sure, you know.
8: But she
22: only knows songs my mother taught me. there's
6: something called knees up, mother Brown. Oh, mother. Mother, the... mother, what do you think you're doing? There's
8: something called a knees
0: up. We're going to go back to Graham Webb here now, and this is something else from his collection that originally went out on the 10th of January 1969. TV soundtrack there again, all wiped. This is the Fawcett Saga. Probably uh, one known as a vehicle for Jimmy Edwards, him of Wacko fame, uh, playing James Fawcett. And you'll recognise other dulcet tones in there, probably of Sam Kidd, playing Herbert Quince, and probably June Whitfield as well. Very early LWT, uh, and not kept, because it was made in black and white. But
16: you don't know
3: nothing about being a detective, Mr Fawcett. I'm an author, Herbert. I know about everything. Yeah, but you don't. You ain't got no training, no equipment. You ain't got an office. And what's more, you ain't got no informants. No, but I have got the one essential qualification. What's that, sir? A rich client. How do you feel about supernatural manifestations, Mr. Fossett? Oh, so-so. Apart from a brush with a she-devil up the Hindu kush, I've always managed, <laughs> managed to find a rational explanation. As I said earlier, the house is regularly visited by the most fearsome apparitions. A headless huntsman together with a pack of baying hounds
6: He who sees the phantom hounds hangs himself for else he drowns
3: What do you think of that, eh? Well,
6: I'm not much of
3: a judge of poetry, as a matter
5: of fact <laughs> <laughs> I
6: have dabbled myself, in course,
3: but I'm more of a man, really I was referring to the awful significance of the rhyme Yes, well, I mean, my dear Meriwether, if you're so perturbated I don't know why you don't pack up and sell the house and leave Oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that unless I continue to live here, my entire inheritance of 50,000 pounds a year goes to charity. 50,000?
5: <laughs> well, I,
3: I dare say you'll be feeling very uh, generously disposed towards anyone who sets your mind at rest about these supernatural manifestations. Precisely why I sent for you, Mr. Fawcett. I have long been an admirer of your exciting green dwarf stories. Yes, well, first there's the matter of my fee. Now, uh, if we can settle the sum of that fee, me, anyway, uh, how does a writer like you get this inspiration a sudden urge to write well it comes to me in the most extraordinary unexpected times really such as when i'm discussing my financial affairs with my banker you know now if we could fix a sum yes. now and your characters mr fawcett they have the breath of life in them they're never overdrawn i wish i could say the same of myself <laughs> as you're such a uh, such a devotee of my literary works i'm prepared to make a substantial reduction in my normal consultation fee yes yes in the morning we'll talk about that in the morning
6: all those who saw the hunts ride <laughs> took to their beds and quickly died, I'll bring in the cocoa.
3: You could have her destroyed, you know.
5: I'll
3: be, I'll be quite I'll be quite frank with you, Mr Mayweather. I'd be much easier in my mind if you signed your check now before you went to bed. I mean, if anything should happen to you in the night, I'd never forgive you. Myself, <laughs>
5: Yes,
3: but I pay by results. Always have done, always will. First, you must solve the mystery. Oh, very well, then, I, there's no need for me to prevaricate any longer, is there? I've solved your mystery. Solved it completely. It all came to me in a blinding flash. You know, suddenly, bang, like that. Ah, uh, the pieces all fitted together so neatly, so perfectly, like a jigsaw puzzle. Why, this apparition is nothing more or less than a sort of a kind of a... Yes, yes, what? Well, I mean, you need look no further than, um... <laughs> Miss Gaunt! There, sir, is your headless huntsman! Oh, Miss Gaunt, my devoted housekeeper? You mean I've been
0: nurturing a
3: serpent to my bosom? Well, I know nothing of your domestic arrangements. <laughs>
0: Now, Kaleidoscope itself has done uh, some audio recording over the years. Many of our guests at the very early events in Starbridge and uh, Mark Shutter have fortunately kept some of those. We have a large collection to choose from, but we're going to try and run you some extracts from some of the la- next few years. This is from December 2006 when we had Verity Lambert, uh, better known, of course, as the, the first producer of Doctor Who. Though I remember uh, for her many other things like Widows and Adam Adamant and you know other shows like that. And um, when we had her. She'd been delayed by about four months from when she was originally planned to appear. We weren't aware of course that she was dying at the time of cancer and um, she, she was an incredibly brave strong woman who never ever kind of gave us a hint. She enjoyed coming to Stavbridge because she had a, an aunt who lived in Kinver, not very far from us so we had quite a nice chat about antique glass and Kinver and all sorts of things uh, and then we also touched on in, in the main interview of course her work so we're going to have two sections here one on uh, Doctor Who and one on Adam Adamant lips.
12: And I, you know, I think people who do come in and actually, for example, the people who came after me and had to do Doctor Who, I think their job was extremely difficult because I had all the, um, the, the luck of, ha- of, of not being prejudged. I didn't have anything to, you know, to, ha- to, nobody yeah. really was going to say, well, this is a huge success. Now, what are you going to do about it? So I, I I left a legacy. I mean we were we were very fortunate and I have to say quite really fortunate because um I was very inexperienced producer and I think there was a lot of luck attached to the success of Doctor Who. Um which we know in, in hindsight, because I was although I'd had experience working in television, I wasn't experience and i was i suppose i was lucky in the sense that you have all the arrogance of the young thing and not really realizing what pitfalls are actually in your way um um but i i think that for example um ennis lloyd who came in and produced doctor who after i did who did i think fantastically good job and made it you know resuscitated revitalized it really um you know had probably a more difficult job and just as I'm I'm full of admiration for Russell T. Davies and the people who have resuscitated Doctor Who because I think that what they've done um, is they I mean it, it's terribly difficult to resuscitate something that's become a a sort of legend and what they have done is they have kept the essence of the old series and uh, but brought it up to date so that a modern audience can you know react.
7: It is always interesting. This the title sequence, yeah. I mean, which in a sense, I mean, you, I I don't, I, I don't understand why people compared it to the Avengers. Though I agree with you, I never really saw it in the same mold as the Avengers. But that was, well, was that, but that was probably probably because it shared some of the same writers, didn't it? So it, it was going to have inevitable comparisons, perhaps because of that. It
12: shared a lot of the same writers, um, and the, and and you know, some very good writers. But but uh, I think the problem is if you work for something like the Avengers, and you're working for something that has a a premise which is um, a bit out, outrageous, then the, the, there is a tendency to try and repeat things that you know work in another area. Whereas I think what we really needed was, we need a bit more Mark Twain than the Avengers, more Yankee at the Court of King Arthur and people know that, that whole kind of observation of two cultures completely separated by years, you know, and, uh, and uh, I, I just felt we Apart from the one that seemingly has been wiped, that James McTaggart wrote, um, I don't think we ever really got as close as I would like. As like, I mean, that's not to say that. I mean, I thought that Gerald Harper was superbly good as Adam, Adam and I mean, really, just the right person. And then Juliet was sweet as as um as as uh what, what was her name? Um,
7: Georgina. Georgina, Ge- that's right. I can't forget that name. I'm not allowed. To.
12: Well, My uh, wife's. Well, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, I and Jack and Jack May was absolutely lovely as a partner with all of these awful limericks, <laughs> but uh, it just just sort of missed really. i mind, so.
0: Four years later, we had a member of Pans People here. Dee Wild was with us in June 2010, and uh, this interview could go on forever because I mean, you know, she she spoke for over an hour about the wonderful life that was being in Pans People. But here's an extract of what she she talked about with Pans People what it was like when they first got on to Top of the Pops.
13: That's how they did it in those days. They, they they must have been much
7: more kind of demanding in the sense that... you. Had...
13: They were because you had to absolutely know when to when to do the number, when to do your little piece. Like, you know, Ruth and I would be doing one thing here, Baz would be there over there doing that, Ruthie would be running around. And funny enough, I mean, it seems easy, but it isn't, because it was late at night after the show we'd be doing this, and you putting it into little bits of... So you'd have done a number. We'd already done our yeah, number. Yeah. This would be for the next week. And all this tech... tech not, not, I can't even say it tech anyway. You Japan. know what I mean? Yes, and the lights and everything. And so you did go wrong because suddenly the music would come up and they'd say you missed your cue. And it was literally like putting together.
7: Did you have a for... preference between the two? I mean, of doing one that was just a sort of straightforward.
13: Oh, straightforward, any day. Also, you know, I was a total, terrible show off. I I, I love the audience. I've always loved the audience.
7: So, having studio audience.
13: Yes, studio audience. So the the atmosphere in the studio, and, and Dave will tell you, it was just incredible. I mean, especially on a live show, it was electric, and it was just a most wonderful atmosphere. And you had also all the all the other. Um, audience in cages behind you and things like that but it was it was a great atmosphere and very scary scary as well because
7: presumably if you if something did go wrong you really couldn't stop and do it again
13: well we did a number called kenny rogers and the first edition i think it's yes and it was called something's burning and it was one of, one of these sort of phonetically mad numbers. And when Flick sometimes used to do, you, and it was eight beats in the bar in, in 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 two bars. I shouldn't tell you how to suck eggs, but and then she'd make us do maybe two two movements on each beat. You just know, so we were sort of on, like I don't know what. I'd be so fast on this particular number, and it was it was very strong and very forceful and very energetic. And I can't remember who it was, and I'm not going to say even if I did remember. One of us went wrong that day and slowly it was like a the domino. Lockdown, yeah, domino effect. Everybody went wrong because it was just so difficult not to to keep going. And so in the end, for the I would say the last 16 bars, we just all improvised. We just all improvised because there was nothing else you could do on a live show. But things sometimes did go wrong. I mean, you know, we were forever falling off the podium. We had a 20... I mean, a lot of people thought that we had enormous space. We didn't. It was 20 feet by 20 feet and it was probably the height of the table over there where it says kaleidoscope and that was our stage and you were in heels and we were in heels and sometimes if you had dry ice you couldn't see the back of the front and if, if, if some of you know dry ice when it gets down to the, onto the floor is totally lethal and we were doing windmills of my mind which is Noel allison thank you i love all you lovely people Propsy. And we were wafting through these gorgeous diaphanous dresses and suddenly Babs disappeared, completely disappeared, and all you heard was this screech and thump and then, (laughs) ow, in the middle and forward, so we just had to, you know, carry on, step over and carry on.
0: John Coley is a man you probably know better nowadays as doing the uh, colour restorations for us on black and white shows, but he also collects audio, and this is... Uh, a sci-fi series called Orbiter X that he sent us a few years ago I don't know a transmission date for it perhaps someone out there will know it instead but uh, yeah, we thought there uh, again because it's sci-fi we'd run a bit of it for you
23: We are not going to do anything unpleasant you Hicks. We are simply carrying out a certain programme of research Research you call it Alright, tell me the worst As you know the normal functions of the body can be slowed down by a controlled process of cooling. that's what you're going to do to me, is it? Yes. Why? What's the idea? Looking ahead, we envisage space flights that may last months, perhaps years. In such cases, a form of uh, suspended animation based on the cooling principle would relieve the crews of all their discomfort. They will put themselves into this condition soon after takeoff, and a time mechanism would, as it were, bring them back to life as their ship approaches its objective. Huh. That's what you hope. That is what we are working on, because in this way men might travel to worlds many light years away from the Earth. Okay, let them go, but loosen these clamps, will you? I can't move. You must remain quite still. Otherwise, the cooling elements cannot do their work smoothly. As your body temperature falls, we shall give you certain treatment to help the process along. It will be quite painless, and you will go into a deep sleep. How long for? Just a short period to begin with, and when you are awake, you will be quite unaware of the passing time. But even if it were a hundred years, you would not have aged. So, in effect, we are giving you an extra span of life. But it isn't human. You can't do this. Just relax, my friend. I am turning up the cooling control.
0: here's a highly embarrassing one for me and uh, I don't quite know what this is going to sound like, because I recorded this <laughs> this is nothing at all to do with Clydescope, whoever put this in the running order should get shot, and in fact uh, I know I know where you live so uh, I shall be around to get you soon Mr Producer, but this is the uh, Decaffeinated Banana Show and this is a, a band called Blue House that I introduced and recorded on UKC Radio, University of Kent at Canterbury Radio, back in 1988 Oh, blimey! And even then, Kaleidoscope was in existence. But this is the decaffeinated banana show with DJ Chris Perry. I assume that being a local band, you've got quite a strong local um, set of groupies, shall we say?
7: Groupies is probably too strong a word because, in fact, we're all completely celibate now. Oh, it says except i terrible. terrible. Yeah, in fact, except for all of us, I was live. <laughs> <lying. laughs> so, um, well, there's there's quite a few fans. I mean, we've got we we probably attract the wrong sort of following. We're nuns, they're a bit poor, they're chainsaw murderers. They're not very profitable, really, are they? Do you find it's the guitarist or the drummer who tends to get all the attention? Sort of. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly the guitarist and the drummer and the bass player do throw themselves at me quite a lot. Oh, I see. And How about the actual women as well? Well, we don't really like them, do we? Well, we know. Yeah, we do. But we've got this big problem because we've got this vow and we can't really break it at the moment. No, I'm, I'm not a sex emblem. I'm afraid this, there's no way I could be classed as that. Um, I mean, I have a bit, but, you know, it's just the same as everybody else. I've A lot of people potter around in the garden. Yeah, sort of a little bit. <laughs> so you don't see any future for the group, then? There's no real prison, really, is there? <laughs> I mean... No, I don't see any past for the group. <laughs> I don't see anything. I had an eyelash in my eye earlier on, and it's still affecting me. Before you do, actually, Joe, did you actually pay the band's fee for playing these ra- songs on your radio? Yeah, Well, this is classed as a promotional um, visit, which means technically you should be paying us. Yes, well, before uh, well, we have a disagreement on the radio, I think we ought to say good night to Mr. Joe Doveton. Well, good night, Chris. Good night, listeners. Thanks for having me and Mr. Basil Glynn, stroker Barry Glum. Bye, everyone. A cool response. It. This is the Decaffeinated Banana Show,
0: broadcasting on UKC Radio nine 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 kilohertz three oh one medium wave AM. That cringe worthy to hear that again after all these years, I have to say, but probably if you're really unlucky. You might get to hear my voice a bit more, particularly since I'm the one doing the podcasts. I mean, you can request somebody else, like, you know, Jeremy Clarkson, but I don't think he's available. So I think you'd have stuck with me for now. Back to Gordon Webster again. And one of the things that he did have was quite a large collection of Peter Cushing uh, audio reels that he sent us. So this is Peter Cushing on Ask Aspel from the 7th of January,
15: 1973. Oh, it's
0: the intro. A long story. Cut it very, really, very really short. I'd always wanted to be. An
15: actor far back, I remember. Um, and I was in an office, I had a glorified office boy, really. mm. uh, a very surveyor's assistant, as was nothing more than an office boy. And I kept writing letters to all the rhetoric comes in companies, and I bombarded Bill Fraser. And eventually I did get a job with him, With such a long and I think very boring story that I did eventually make two before you. Yeah. But again, you see, they were the film equivalent to Mortimer Myers. Again, it was. Fascinating, because um, the little one, Stan Laurel, was the brain, but not just with like any means, uh, dim, but far from it. But the Stan Laurel was the one who invented all the business of all the gag, and the fat one kept eating doughnuts Peter's pieces up He said, actually, I have to do it. Yes, he fed a little dumb waiter full of doughnuts. The film was quite different, as this for many it's a thing I've always wanted far as back as I can remember, I always wanted to be in the film without knowing anything about it, any medium and uh, I think very lucky that I've got all four medium media. and I say if it is so always will be shown. I like making all films along with the script for good in it very difficult William Hartnell was the original, then I think it the Patrick Price-Muth, and then John pertwick and. Uh, I had to almost disassociate being three very different personalities that playing the same part. I thought the only thing to do for the film version, where everyone who had seen the television shows might not go to see, uh, so you had to treat them as an entirely new audience, Doctor. But just play him as a the almost conventional, absent minded professor, but with quite a good brain,
0: having made this wonderful time machine, mm. TARDIS. Well, we're nearly finished, and soon you'll be able to go back and cut out all of my awful links and just just kind of uh, lace all the clips together instead. You'll have know, a far better evening without me wittering on. And uh, this is an interesting one. I can't remember who the gentleman was who gave us these. He rang me up, having seen us on TV brain, and made me take these reels away. They were all audio recordings uh, held by a gentleman in Cannock, which is not very far from where I live now. And this, this is a, a 5 Alexa, 5 episode called Planet of Plutonia. Um, but we're not interested in playing the actual Fibre Alexa 5 episode, though we might run the music, if Bill's kind enough to do that, because it is quite quite nice, the music. Uh, we were more excited because he'd recorded the whole show was on audio timer, and so there's some very good pre and post continuity in the shows and sometimes the advert break. So so we're gonna run you that the pre-show uh, continuity, the post-show continuity, and if there are any the ads as well, just as an illustration of what TV was like really going out, you know, on ATV uh, at the time of Fireball XL5. It's a milky bar
5: here.
0: The Milky Bar kit is strong and
20: tough, and only the best is good enough. The creamiest milk, the whitest bar,
1: the goodness that's in Milky Bar. The
20: Milky Bar's are on me! Milky Bar, so creamy white, metal Milky Bar. We like to meet the schnapp, straggle, poppers. Snap, Crackle, Pop, Rice Krispies. And if you're a Snap, Crackle, Popper, you can win one of these Matchbox Motorway sets in the Rice Krispies painting competition. It's judged in three age groups, so everyone has a chance. Full details are on the back of special packets of your favorite Snap, Crackle, Pop, Rice Krispies. From the free Triang Christmas catalogue, the Triang Highway Range. Big British engineering with built-in strength. Big value, big choice. From your Triang toy shop, now.
8: Keep them happy for ages to come with Airfix Better Builder. Every new set builds into the last. Get better value, better builder for Christmas by Airfix. You love
20: giggles. she's a happy, happy doll Just hear her laugh Tell her jokes, she giggles Make a funny face, she giggles She's the happiest doll you ever had She's ideal Here's another ideal game
5: Mousetrap
20: As you play, you build up the craziest mousetrap you ever saw Mousetrap Remember, mousetrap from Ideal
9: Good morning. Good morning, Trevor.
20: The best to you each morning. Sorry to interrupt your breakfast. Kellogg's Corn None crisper, none fresher, none
10: better. Later on this afternoon, we'll be showing you all how to get knotted, in the nicest possible way, of course. Actually, it's a new method of crocheting without using all those difficult and rather complicated little instruments it should be fascinating for our younger lady viewers. Then we'll be showing you the one and only athletic event that Tony Bastible's ever won, And getting the results from the toy car race that Graham Neal was talking about last week. I'm talking about Magpie, of course, and it's at 5.15. Right now though, adventure with Fireball XL5. Okay, Venus?
15: Okay, Steve.
18: Right. Let's go.
17: Private Horner was caught
4: chocolate-handed eating nut milk chocolate on parade.
18: Who do you think you are, the chocolate soldier?
4: Private Bell eats peanut treats. The peanuts are wrapped in thick milk chocolate, then covered in a delicious sugar candy coat that stops the chocolate melting in your hand. Private Bell is Sergeant Bell now. Treats milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hand.
13: Have you seen
11: TV Times this week? If you're mad on cooking, I should put the oven on low and run
7: out and get one while they're still hot. There's big helpings in TV Times this week. Fine Fair's Fresh Food Festival is on now and there's lots of bargains. Like this Anchor Butter, only one in seven are fun. Plus, these fantastic money saving vouchers. This gives you sixpence off all sausages. This, sixpence on any of these and Ivo products. And this, one in six of all weights of oven-ready chickens. The vouchers are in today's Express and pura. Bring them in and get your share
10: of the savings at Pine fairs, Fresh Food Festival. Robertson's holds a full one pound of jam. Don't they all, you ask? No, some jams only give you
0: 12 ounces. Get more jam for your money from Robertson's. It's the heavyweight. We're on to our last few clips now, and this is a a gentleman who died shortly after giving us his collection. A gentleman called David Owens, who was a sound engineer for Southern Television. And this is Southern Television's lunchtime show from the 19th of January,
19: 1969, with Jim Dale. Uh, Janet Richmond's latest recording, and I hope you like it. Well, here we are once again in this lunchtime audience... And I think we'll start off with a, a teenager. She's sitting back here, clutching a doll like mad. M- would you move your pointed toes? Because I don't want an accident. There we are. Hello, Pet. Now, your, your name is what? Marion Bush. Marion Bush. Where do you come from, Marion? Gosport. Come from Gosport. And what's your dolly's name here? Elizabeth. Elizabeth, is it? How long have you had Elizabeth? I don't know. You don't know? Does that mean ever since you've been born? No. No? And how many other dollies have you got then?
13: 14. How many? 14.
19: 14? Look at me. Smile. <laughs> Alright, 14. fourteen. Fourteen. Now, um, is this your favorite one? Yes. Yeah, what do what, what you bought it? You bought it along to see the show? Does it like our show? I
5: don't know
19: is it? Well, ask her. Go on. Can she talk yet? Yeah? What does she do? Squeak or what? Squeak. Some of them do terrible things, don't they, these days? <laughs> Alright, so you don't know how long you've had it, but have you any brothers and sisters then?
13: Only a sister, 15.
19: Only a sister, 15. She won't like that, will she? Only a sister. Is she at school still? No, she goes to work. Oh, I see. And uh, what are you going to be when you go to work?
5: Teacher, I suppose.
19: You like to be a teacher? <laughs> well, you've got enough dolls to start your own classroom now, haven't you? No. All right, let's move down. We've got. Let's go uh, down to this lady. Nice little fur coat on here. Hello, madam. Hello. You cold? No, I'm no, not warm, good. really. You are? Your name is what? Truman. Mrs. Truman. where yes. do you come from?
11: Wilton Crescent, Christmas, Shirley.
19: You didn't come with a crowd of people today, no, did you? No, no, we didn't really, just my friend and I here. Yeah. Oh, I see. Do you often watch the show? Oh, yes, every we do, day.
6: every day, yes. Enjoy it, do you? Mm, I do. Well, thank well. you very I much knew indeed. You, meet, you came in.
19: Did you? Mm-hmm. Well, we come in just to say hello before the show. You know? <laughs> very nice, too. Good. Well, let's try and talk to as many people as we can. Let's move further down. We're giving the tracking experience to our cameraman here, yeah. but this gentleman, your name is what? Derek Slater. Derek, and who did you come with today, Derek? Gay, my fiance. Gay, hello, gay. Yeah. And uh, may I ask what your job is? Um, well, yes, I'm with the Universal Health Studios here. We're opening a studio in Southampton. Health Studios? Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? You go along there and weightlifting all day long? Uh, well, no, we're on the management side, but, um, you know, we slim people or put on weight for both men and women. Really? Mm. How long has this been going though? Well, it's an American organization that's been over in London for about a year now. Yes. And um, now we're sort of moving to Southampton and they're spreading about 50 throughout this country. Have you got any what they call sauna baths where you belt each other with birch leaf <laughs> twigs? <tweaks? laughs> no, we've got very similar. We have steam baths <laughs> and you can run next door and have a cold shower if you're so energetic. You, you know? Well, you mean you have a steam bath in one room and nip mm. next door in the cold yes, shower? Yes, well, you have a steam bath and then you lay out with the showers alongside it, you see. Uh, what, what do you do then? They lay you out in what room? Well, another room for laying out in? Yes, you've got sunrooms and things like Surely that. Surely the shock of coming out of a hot shower, a straight and uh, hot, uh, what is it, steam room into a cold shower, what's that feeling like?
1: Bloody cold. Horrible. <laughs>
19: <laughs> well, I wish you the very best of luck with yeah. it. Now, let's see, let's move over. Move over to this lady here. And,
5: uh,
19: oh, hello. And <laughs> that's all we've got time for because, sorry, but we've got to finish up now. And uh, here's uh, Danny and myself, and we'd like to um, sing a little song which we hope you like, and it's called Friends.
17: Friends, isn't it rather nice to have friends? Isn't it rather nice to have friends? to rely upon,
19: shoulders to cry upon, you must have friends, friends, how can you get along without friends, how can you get along without someone to help you out when you were down a
0: And here we go, into the final two shows, and I'm saving two biggies for last as they say, The first one is the very, very famous find now by Robert Wynn uh, of some audio reels of Doctor Who, recorded off the telly all those years ago, which have become a bit more legendary with Mark Ayres because he reckons they're some of the best quality recordings ever heard. We couldn't really not uh, talk about them without looking at a couple that certainly were were, were made in January. So from the 29th of January 1966, we've got a short extract from a Dalek Masterplan episode called Destruction of Time. And I'm sure I don't need many people to tell me what the Daleks sound like. And then we've also got another extract, uh, which I'm going to talk about. It's from The Underwater Menace, episode one. OK, which is uh, from the 14th of January, 1967. And there again, I mean, you know, you couldn't possibly not want to hear the wonderful Josie First really doing his mad scientist impression. So here are two Doctor Who clips from the Robert Wynn collection.
20: That spaceship has any, anything to do with that violent young man or any connection with that city below yes there are one or two questions i must have answered control reports space vessel 111 in landing circuit is all prepared everything is ready Don't think you'll be able to get out of there in a hurry, my friend.
5: (laughs) What is this? Oh,
20: it's a little invention of mine. I call it the magnetic chair. It has a force field strong enough to restrain a herd of elephants. So I wouldn't waste your energy trying to escape. hmm? You'll stay there until I direct otherwise. (laughs) How is it, my dear? By the way, I found the city. And just as I was about to ascertain its locale, that young ruffian set upon me. Can you get help for Stephen? Oh, yes, I hope so. Uh, uh, Just a minute. Uh, uh. That, um... That young man, did he say anything? Hmm? (laughs) strange. Mm. Yes, I shall have to cross-examine him when I get back. But don't worry, he's quite safe. He... Our guest is quite unable to move until I press that little switch at the back. So you're quite
5: safe.
20: <laughs> is, uh, it's quite harmless. <laughs> oh, and uh,
21: quite comfortable, I hope. <laughs> oh, but this
1: is good. This is very good. Mmm, mm. it's delicious.
20: This is excellent. Sit down, sit down. This
6: is Ambrosio. <laughs> it's got into him. I don't know. I've never seen him go for food like this before. It usually has.
20: Better hurry or scoff the lot. What is it? Plankton. Plankton? What's that? Well, it's small plants and animals from the sea.
6: Animals?
20: Yeah, little spidery ones.
6: Oh, I don't think I'm very
20: hungry, suddenly. <laughs> you better get used to it. I don't expect there's much else to be had around here.
1: Visitors. Good day Joe. We've been expecting you.
6: He speaks English.
20: What does he mean he's been expecting us? We didn't know we were coming ourselves. The living goddess Ando sees and hears all. And she had a message about us? For you? Yes. She told us you would fall from the sky in time for our festival of the vernal equinox. And just what part are we to play in this festival of the vernal equinox? A very important part, I regret to say. Guards? Oh. No! Wait! I have something important to say! We can say it then. I won't speak under threats. You have five minutes in which to make your point. After that, you will join your companions. The ceremony will proceed. Doctor! Go, girl. What will happen to them? They will come to no harm, Yes. You'll have to go, Polly. Now, stranger, say what you have to, and do not waste time. There is very little of it left for any of you. What I have to say? concerns a certain Professor Zaroff. What do you know of Zaroff? A great deal. He's here, isn't he? How did you know? The food! It couldn't be anyone else but Zaroff. He led the field in producing food from the sea. His progress is astonishing. Uh, You are a friend of Zaroff? Just send him this message, and you'll see. I will take no message to Zaroff. You're making a big mistake! Yes, what is it, Ara?
6: I was told to clear the table.
7: Yes, yes, we've wasted enough time. Ara,
20: take this message to Professor Zaroff.
0: And the final clip is from a Hancock's half-hour called New Year Resolutions, which we weren't going to originally uh, include, but the Tony Hancock Society very kindly pointed out that only a short section of this edition exists, and because the quality is not particularly good on the recording, it has never been released on commercial CD, so I thought the least we could do was was have a little uh, insight since it is the new year into uh, Tony Hancock's New Year's resolutions. Uh, you're going to be hearing this this podcast at the end of January to 2023. Like I said, there are 12 more to come, but I'm recording it on the 3rd of January, 2023. So the uh, idea of New Year's resolutions seems very apt.
20: I'm not saying another word till I've had a look at me this. oh all right, then, let's be fair. I'll give you a chance to win your money back. For every resolution you keep for the year, I'll give you five pounds, and for everyone you break, you give me five pounds. Starting from now, right? Sid, this is going to be easy. Man of arm will like me. <laughs> I'll let to go now. Uh, Sid James asked me to pop in and see him for me. I'll come with you, just to keep a check on you. <laughs> Come on, let me get on. I'm late for an appointment. All right, come on in. Hold tight now. Excuse me. Can I sit down? Room for a little in here? (laughs) Thank you. Um, Hello, little girl. What are you crying for? (laughs) Now. <laughs> oh, come on, cheer up. It's not as bad as all that. But you could not make me take off but I haven't got my bed and I've been late for school and the teacher made me stay behind tonight. And perhaps you could work. Perhaps I could what? <laughs> perhaps you could lend me Fulpin. Fine, certainly. Of course I'll lend you Fulpin. Neither a borrower or a lender be. Oh, yes. Well, look, I'm sorry, little girl. It's for some particular... I, I, see, I can't lend you for them. You see, the. <coughs> Stop it. Everybody's looking at us. It's all right. Yes, yes, nothing to do with me. No, 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 no. I don't know. No, no. I didn't, Clutter. No, no, no. No, not yet. No, shut up. Go and sit somewhere else. Go on, sit next to the vicar. I don't think he walloped you. Oh, you might send me forward, please. I've got to make me get off when I've been left for school. Eh? Hard luck. I had to walk to school. No boots, either. <laughs> shut up, Grizzly. And the teacher kicked me in after school. Look, I can't help you. I'm not sending you forward, so I, shut up. And then I get into trouble for getting home late. Right? Yes, yeah, shame My heart bleeds for you. Shut up. And then it makes me go... Do so you good? Get rid of those bags under your eyes. Don't keep on! I can't lend you for them. I've, look, I've just, I've made a resolution. You see, never lend money. I, I can't break it. It's more than I dare do. I worked there to mend caps, our bow,
5: and the wires. I'm sorry. There's nothing. I... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very
20: much. Well, it's all. <laughs> I saw you lend it for, but neither a dollar nor a lender beer. That's half of it gone. Come on. Two pounds ten, you know me. Oh, no, I didn't lend it to her. She grabbed it out of me, huh? <laughs> no, pardon me. I did not. Yes, you did. <laughs> Give us a try. Sorry. <laughs> oh, nothing to do with me, Miguel. That was dinner before, or just before. please, please everybody, please. please. Uh, what's going on here? It's him, the fat gazer. He Let his, <laughs> his little girl <laughs> and Now he wants his back again. No, I did not lend it to her. Yes, he did. I saw him. He didn't see anything. You were too busy drawing moustaches on those Jack Hawkins faggots, uh. <laughs> oh, Did he lend you fourpence, little girl? Yes. I didn't. Listen, I'll give you a pound if you tell him I didn't lend you fourpence. I don't want a pound. I just want a pulpit for my bike, then you let me. I don't think you fourpence. a pulpit. Look out of that throat. I'm a sucker. I'm, sure. I'm, sure. I'm at minor beat. Give it a pulpit. What, you? Now, I'm going to be down, sir. I'm not worth to a man like you. That's not the point. You look well fed, a am lovely, Captain. Is he doing all right? <laughs> No, he is. Look at him. Fast. Yes, sir, I'm in a very dodgy professional. He's got a checkbook. I don't know why the lots of him uses the buses anyway. Parasite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a perfect match. Working men's transport buses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You social butterflies, gallivant about here and there. Why do you eat a taxi? Yeah. Muggies, mate. round to go round, mate. <laughs> but when our lot get in, we'll have your lot in the car. Here, <laughs> Leave the busses to us, this isn't a rush hour. It is for me, I'm likely front ladies. <laughs> you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Stinking rich, you won't even lend a poor little kid's orphanage. All right, I'll lend a orphan back. I oh, you think so too? Now then, what do you want, little girl? A penny half, please. <laughs> a penny half? I've been twisted. He can't afford me. What's the other sentence for? Well, an old dad wants a ticket as well,
5: doesn't he? <laughs> but who's an old dad?
20: I oh, yeah. <laughs> Cut me all the way, please, mate. Coming up. Oh, that's good, isn't it? That's, that's marvellous. <laughs> Don't see a father putting a young child up for that sort of thing. <laughs> My dad never made us kids do anything.
0: And that's all, folks, as they say. That is the very first edition of the Kaleidopod. And anybody who would like to send any questions, they want to ask me about the audio archive or requests for things to listen to from the audio archive, can do so by emailing us at info at tvbrain.info. If you want to subscribe to our database at TV Brain, you can find that at www.tvbrain.info you can join our facebook group called colliders get Bar Archive or you can also if you want to uh, you know find us on amazon if you want to buy any of our books or dvds we have events coming up at the midland arts centre uh, in march june september and december which we'll find out about on our facebook page and on the 5th of august we're at the british film institute for our 35th anniversary event as well so all good uh, i look forward to speaking to you next in at the end of February 2023 I'll say happy new year to you now because it's still the start of 2023 for me but since it's now the end of January for you guys listening to this maybe I should say happy February to you instead and I'll speak to you later bye bye